You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings chapter 13. The truth is, I think we'll probably end up in 1 Kings 12 first. You can find your way there this morning. 1 Kings chapter 13. We'll be introduced today to a man named Jeroboam. And it was interesting as I looked at his life, people have nicknames that they're known for that we're aware of. These will be familiar to many of you. If I said Stonewall, I think some of you would think of Stonewall Jackson. Maybe the Desert Fox, if you were a World War II buff, thinking about German military generals, Rommel. If I were to say this morning, uh, the Rocket, I think many of you would understand who that was. Or the Undertaker, for those who are somewhat younger, who believe that WWE wrestling was real. It's not. Sorry. Or the Great One, right? There's nothing else to say. You would know who that would be. Or maybe Grapes. He's known as Grapes. You would know that. We're going to talk about a man this morning who, when he was humble, was said to be a man of valor, industrious, and trustworthy. But when given a position of leadership, he became arrogant, ambitious, and rebellious. And he's given a nickname that I think is amazing. Jeroboam is known as the man which caused Israel to sin. And every time you see his name come up in the book of Kings and Chronicles, he is given that name as the man who caused Israel to sin. And so this morning we will look at his life, the beginning of his life, and the start of how he received this nickname the man who caused Israel to sin. First Kings chapter 12 this morning. We'll begin there. We'll, we'll actually cover all of chapter 13. And I have to say to you this morning, I don't know if there's a more bizarre story in the book of Kings than what we'll talk about this morning in chapter 13. It is strange. And I've read it for years, always scratching my head to think about what's the point. And so hopefully today... In the life of Jeroboam, in this strange story, we will get the point. 1 Kings chapter 12, look, if you would, at verse number 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart. Can we just stop there for a moment? Listen to what was just said. Jeroboam is by himself, and now he says something in his heart. Can I say to you this morning that when we have conversations in our hearts, without inside influence or truth being spoken to us, it can be a very dangerous place to be. We all talk to ourselves. Some of us do it while we're driving on the road and people see us doing it, right? But we all have this internal monologue happening. And the Bible says that here is Jeroboam, and he says in his heart, 
And again, I submit to you, this is not a safe place to be with all of your conversations. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but when I was a child, every now and then, on rare occasions, I would be in trouble. And when I was in trouble and my parents would be frustrated, they would say to me, go to your room. And so I would march up the stairs, slam the door, go to my room, and while I was in my room, do you know what I was thinking? I was not thinking about how fair and just my parents were. I was not thinking about the problem of my own selfishness and sin. I was talking to myself in my heart with every excuse and reason I could give them when they came through the doors to tell them why they were wrong. Ever been there? Did you ever do that? Yes, right? And we're thinking, when he comes through the doors, I'm going to tell him, blah, 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 point A, B, C, and that'll put them in their place. And every time I'd have these conversations and convince myself that that was true and that was right and that's what they needed, the doors would open, and I would never say a word. Because it was so stupid what I was thinking, how I'd say to them exactly what they needed to hear from me. And here is Jeroboam. He's speaking in his heart. I submit to you this morning, it's a dangerous place to be. Because in your heart and my heart, we always win. We're always right. No one pushes back against that. Here's what he says in his heart. Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. You recall he has now given ten tribes. He is now the king of Israel. And he's fearful that they will return to David. Why? If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem... Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. He's speaking in his heart, and his problem is orthodoxy. He says, okay, I'm the king here, but I know what true worship is. True worship takes place in Jerusalem. We don't have that. And if these people go back there yearly and for the feast and everything else, and they're going to the temple and they're worshiping the true God of heaven, Yahweh, then what will happen is they'll understand that what we have here is a, it's a sham. And they'll fall in love with Rehoboam, the king of the south, the king of Judah, and then they'll know that I'm a traitor and they will kill me. And I have to tell you, In the heart, that makes real sense. Here's the problem with what he's saying in his heart. The word of the Lord had already spoken. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 11 this morning, and this is what God said to Jeroboam before he ever took the throne. And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and will walk in my ways, and do that, which is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did, that I will be with thee. This is God speaking to him, Jeroboam. And I will build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto thee. See, he's having this conversation in his heart, and his problem is God had already said to him, this is exactly what I will do. Can I submit to you this morning, my dear brother and sister in Christ, it is never a good idea to let our lives be dictated by our hearts or how we feel. Why? Because my feelings and your feelings, they ebb and flow, they come and go, they're feelings. And when God has spoken, it's the end of the conversation. But that wasn't the case for Jeroboam. He's speaking in his heart. 
So then he has this great idea. Now that he's speaking to himself, now that there's not any outside pushback of truth, he's going to come up with his own religion. And it's bull. No, literally bull. Look at the text. Um, Verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves, or bulls of gold, and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold, thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin, and the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And so here is Jeroboam, thinking in his own heart, comes up with his own religion. And what I find amazing is that he seeks to secure the throne by the very thing that toppled the throne for Solomon, idolatry. So this is how it starts. Jeroboam now has his own religion. It is a, um, a false religion. It is an idolatrous religion. And, he's, and, he, and he sends Israel into a very bad place. So we come to chapter 13 now of 1 Kings. And now... Jeroboam, is, uh, he set himself up as the, uh, the high priest of his own religion, which was very convenient. And he's having a perfectly fine church service now. We find in chapter 13, verse number 1, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So here he is having a perfectly fine church service, and all of a sudden, in comes an uninvited guest who interrupts the service. And can I say to you, no matter who you are or where you've been, an uninvited guest interrupting the service is problematic regardless. Have you ever been in a service where it was interrupted by someone? It's happened twice here. The first time, um, we had a man come from the back of the room cursing his whole way up. Now, I have to say, Pastor Dan was the one that was teaching that morning, so I completely understand that part of it. He was furious. Furious. And, and I thought, we were going to throw down, man. I was sitting here, AJ was here then, and we made a beeline here. I don't know why we got in front of Dan, but we did. And he was swearing and cursing, and we had to actually have him be removed. This happened right before the preaching service. It was it was unnerving, really. I mean, it was, it was humorous now, but when it was going on, it was really a scary thing. It happened a second time. It was a Sunday night, and I don't know, Ian, if you'll remember this, but Ian was singing um, a song about Jerusalem on a Sunday evening, and we had a visitor come up. He sat right about here. He had never been here before. And Ian starts singing, and the man had no idea about the song, none. And Ian was singing, Oh, Jerusalem. You know how he sings? Oh, Jerusalem. And the guy didn't know the song. And as, as he was singing, the guy would repeat the words as fast as he could. Oh, Jerusalem. <laughs> and it went on the whole song. And I was sitting here. I was laughing. I couldn't believe how funny this was. And Ian was just like, Oh, and he'd go, oh, he's looking at the guy like he'd stop. Jerusalem. And the guy's like, Jerusalem. And it was, it was unbelievable. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh. So, don't do that today. Okay. So here is Jeroboam, a perfectly fine good ser- service, and it's interrupted. 
but it's interrupted by the man of God. And listen to what he says as Jeroboam is really comfortable now with his idolatry, with his way. Verse 2, And the man of God cries against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, Altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, the child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priest of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt unto thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And this is, picture this. Here's his church service. He's the high priest there. The guy comes in, and he makes a proclamation and a prophecy and says, Listen, Understand, Jeroboam, there is coming a day from the house of David, one will rise up whose name is Josiah, which means the Lord heals, or the Lord helps and supports, and he's coming, and this altar will be destroyed, this ministry will be destroyed, Um, he will actually take the bones of those who desecrated God's plan and burn them on the altar, And, and so he says that. Now listen, what's amazing about that is Josiah, who will come, who's mentioned by name, comes 300 years later. 300 years before the event, God tells the man of God, this is his name, and this is what he'll do. It's an amazing thing, actually. And, and Josiah comes. And by the way, Josiah wasn't named by a good, godly Christian dad. His father, Ammon, was a horrible king, so wicked that his own servants killed him. But God gives his prophecy. And he says, just so that you know this is coming 300 years away, they didn't know that, I'm going to show you something right now that will happen to prove that if I can predict what's happening right now, you can be assured that it will happen 300 years later. And isn't that our God? He's already said some things that we know have happened already. We can be assured that what he says next is coming is coming. Right? And he says the altar will be destroyed. So, verse number 4, Jeroboam hears this during the middle of his perfectly fine church service. And the king Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, and he said to the ushers, grab that guy. And his hand, which he stretched forth, withered and dried, so that he could not pull it up again. And when he does this, verse number five, the altar also was rent, it toppled down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me. The guy he just wanted killed, now he wants him to pray for him, that my hand may be restored again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. So you see the scene, disruption in church. Jeroboam's not happy. He reaches out to grab the guy. His hand withers. He gets nervous now. The altar breaks. What God said happened did happen. Pray for me. He does. Everything's fine. Here's what Jeroboam says next as the man of God, verse number 7. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. And this is strange, right? It's just like, hey, thank you. Let me reward you. And he says, no, I'm not going back with you. I'm not eating bread with you. I'm not drinking water with you. If you gave me half of your kingdom, which is a sweet deal, I'm not doing it. Well, why? And he gives the answer in verse 9. 
For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread and drink water, nor turn again by the same way thou camest. God told me, this is the word I had, I cannot do what you've asked me to do. So he goes on. He tells him this. So, verse 10, he went another way and returned to by returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and this is, I have to say, this is where the story gets really weird, okay? It's, it's weird, so just listen. From here on out, the whole story is weird. So, this old prophet from Bethel comes, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto him, you know, which way did he go? And the sons told them which way he went uh, back to, to Judah. Now listen, just that so you know, from Bethel, where he proclaimed this, to the frontiers of Judah, it's only six miles. It's not, it's not like, oh, we got days to get back across the border. It's six miles. That's it. So jump down to verse number 14 now. The man of God's on his way home. The old prophet hears where he's at. 14, and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest uh, from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. Right? The same invitation the king gave him. And he said, the man of God, I may not return with thee, nor go up with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For... It was said to me, by the word of the Lord, thou shalt not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return again by the way that thou camest. Verse 18. He said unto him, this is the old prophet now, I am a prophet, I'm a man of the cloth just like you are. And an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with thee unto thine house, that he might eat bread and drink water but he lied to him. Weird. Here's an old prophet who invites the guy back. He says, I can't go. The word Lord told me I can't go. He says, oh, by the way, I'm just like you are. I'm a math cloth. An angel spoke to me and said, bring him back. He lied. This is more surprising, verse 19. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. Verse 20, and it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back, the guy who lied. They're sitting eating a meal together. And picture the scene now, right? I'm eating, drinking, it's great, great meal. And the, and the old prophet, verse 21, cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but you came back and you've eaten the bread and you drank water in this place of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. Imagine eating a meal and right in the middle of the meal, the guy who invited you says, I got a word from the Lord and here's what he says. Because you disobeyed, you are going to die. And not only die, they're not even going to bury you in your father's sepulchers. Now, this is where I think the man was probably a Baptist. 
And I'll tell you why. The man of God. Not because he's a man of God, he's Baptist. But I think he was a Baptist because of his response. Imagine if you're sitting at a table, you're right in the middle of the meal, and someone says, hey, by the way, God just said, you're going to die. And you're not going to be buried where you think you're going to be buried. Wouldn't that be a little bit disturbing to you? I mean, that might interrupt what I was doing at the time. Look what he does. And it came to pass after he had eaten bread and drank water. He finishes his meal. He's got to be Baptist. And it must have been a pretty good casserole that they were having. It must have been cheesy chicken roll-ups, man. And it was, just, it was so good that in the midst of telling him, you're doomed, he sits at the table and he finishes his meal. That's so bizarre to me. I don't care how good it would have been. How would you sit there? And he doesn't say anything about the, the, the proclamation, the denouncement. He finishes his food and goes on from there. So, verse number 24. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. And his carcass was cast in the way. And the donkey stood by it, the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and told it unto the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It's the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord hath delivered him unto the lion, which hath torn him and slain him according to the word of the Lord which he spake unto him. So he gets on his own mule. He finds the guy. He finds it just like he said. He shows up, and here's this prophet. He's dead, ripped apart by a lion. The lion is sitting there. The donkey's sitting there, and they're, they're not moving. It's bizarre. So he finds the body. Verse 30, he picks it up, and he laid his carcass, the man of God, in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass, after he had buried him, that he spake to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulcher, wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against the house of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria, they shall surely come to pass. And after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil ways, but made again of the lowest of the people, priest of the high places, whoever would be consecrated, whoever would he, would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And that's the end of the story. It's a great bedtime story for your kids, isn't it? There are so many questions unanswered in this text. I mean, really. Why is the guy sent from Judah to go there six miles away? He can't stop. He can't get water. He can't eat. He's supposed to go home. Why is the old prophet there not denouncing the idolatry in his own land? Why are his kids at this weird church service in the first place? Why does he find him and lie to him? Why does the guy believe him? Why does he go and have a meal and in the middle of it just act nonchalant after the judgment's been pronounced on him? Why doesn't he get in the face of this guy and say, you lied to me? 
Why the severe punishment? Why all of it? And the truth is, read the text again, the narrator never tells you why. He doesn't answer any of those questions we might have. And the reason must be that those questions really don't matter. That can't be the most important thing about the story. And I submit to you, those questions are not important to the story. But there's something happening here. I gave you an assignment last week to search the text out to see of a phrase that kept on repeating itself in this chapter. Did anybody figure out what that phrase might be? Did anybody read the chapter that we gave you? Anybody have any idea what the phrase might be? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. It comes up about 15 times in this text. It's important. But the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. My friend, listen to me. If we start with God, and you've got to start with somewhere, right? You can't, oh, matter is eternal. No, science has proven matter is not eternal. You've got to start somewhere. If we start with God, then it is God who must reveal himself to us. He must. And he has. He has. Creation shouts out the glory of God. We see it in creation. We see it in design. We see it in fine-tuning. We see it in beauty. We see it in diversity. That God has revealed himself through this creation. Listen, this thing does not work. This whole planet, this whole universe, if it changes by a slight degree, there is no life. He's revealed himself through creation. And not only that, this God is so kind that he has revealed himself through his word. His word. And if the God of heaven has revealed himself through his word, then that word is authoritative. It means we ought to be listening to the word of God. And he's done better than that. God has a funny way of taking truth and wrapping it in flesh. And he did that. You want to know what this God is like? You want to know what he rejoices in? Do you want to know what angers him? You want to know about his justice, his mercy, and his kindness? Then look to the word of God incarnate. That God robed himself in flesh, to walk among us, to reveal himself. And so, the truth of this text is the word of God. And it happens over and over again. And my hope this morning, as we start bringing this thing back down, is this, that we will see how each of these characters interacted with the word of God, and how, because of the wrong interaction, it destroyed them. Let's start with the weirdest first. That old prophet. The old prophet. For him, the word of God was his career. It was his job. And he abused it. He abused the word of God. He played fast and loose with the word. He made it more of a game than a passion of love for the truth. And it was obvious that it meant nothing to him. 
meant nothing. He was an old prophet. I don't know what he was used for in the past, but when it came to where the rubber meets the road and he wanted something different, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, God said that, but an angel told me. <laughs> you better be careful when people start talking about angels told them things. Whether Mohammed or Joseph Smith, not a good idea. Obviously, it meant little to him. It was his career. He abused it. He says, okay, wait, that, that doesn't make sense to me. The word is not my career. I'm not a pastor. I'm an elder. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a teacher. And I would say to you, ah, you're wrong. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The word of God should be our life. It should be our career. If the God of heaven has revealed himself through his word, it ought to be of the utmost importance to us this morning. The truth of God should grip us. It should control us. It should transform us. And I'm not just talking about preachers and teachers. Certainly you understand this morning that that as the leadership of this church, we have no right to come up with these great ideas or this charismatic sort of concept or to tell you what we think. It doesn't work that way. The only authority we have is found in that book. Period. And that's how you check it all out. But for all of us, the word of God, don't abuse it. Let it speak. We'll post it on our walls. We'll put it in our frames. But the minute it rubs us the wrong way, we're okay with abusing it and discarding it. Oh, I love the word. It's the bread of life. Uh, I can't live without it. Until it tells me to work hard and be honest at work when I don't feel like it. Then I discard it. Oh, that was, that was written so long ago. Until it tells me to love my wife when she's not very lovely that morning. Not mine, yours. Until it tells me to be kind to people who are not kind to me. Until it tells me to forgive and to let it go and to seek reconciliation. Oh, those are great concepts. But when the rubber meets the road and it smacks me in the face and it rubs me the wrong way, then I decide, eh, not really my career, not my thing, I'm out. This old prophet, the word was his career, and he abused it. Isn't it amazing? We trust the word of God for our eternal souls. You know that, right? If you're here this morning, you are not trusting this church to get you to heaven. You are not trust. you might be, but you're not supposed to be. You're not trusting your good works. You're not trusting religion. You're not trusting being a good guy or a good girl. That's not it. You are trusting what this book said about the finished work of Jesus Christ. That salvation is in Christ alone, through his shed blood, through repentance and faith in him. And we will trust our eternal soul on that word. And yet we won't trust our everyday life. Is that bizarre to you? It is to me, and I do it all the time. Oh, God, thank you for saving my soul that I cannot see for all eternity. And yet, your word, when it speaks to me every day, I just abuse it. That was the old prophet, his career. He abused it. The man of God, the one from Judah, the word of God was his cover and his safety. And he abandoned it. 
God had clearly spoken to him. Yet he believed a claim that was in clear opposition to the word of God. And why did he do it? Because an authoritative voice came along and said, well, an angel told me, oh, an angel. And he falls for it. Did really well in the hard thing. The king is saying, come home with me. Can't do it. Nope, not clear. Now he talks about an angel. He's right on the bandwagon. There's a story that's told, and I, if you're not a baseball player, I think you still can get it. But in 1915, St. Louis was playing Brooklyn in a baseball game. And in the seventh inning, the score was tied. It was the bottom of the seventh. There were two outs, and there was a runner on third base for St. Louis. The manager at the time, his name was Huggins, I think, he was coaching the third base box. And he didn't call timeout, but he yelled over to a 23-year-old rookie pitcher for Brooklyn and said, hey, Bob, let me see the ball. And the rookie pitcher looked at the ball, and he threw it over to the, the manager for St. Louis. And when he threw it over, the manager watched the ball come and just stepped out of the way and watched the ball roll by him. And when it did, the guy in third pace ran home for the game-winning run. That's how baseball works. Okay? I know you know it's not a hockey puck. It's a ball that you throw like this. They lost the game. Why would that 23-year-old rookie throw that ball when timeout was not called to that manager? Because he was authoritative. Hey, Bob, throw me the ball. All right. Lose the game. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse number 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone into the world. Beloved, you, me, try the spirits. Why? Because people can come across with authoritative voices, and you can believe them, but it's not accurate. Listen to me. I don't care Who comes across as being authoritative, whether it's an old prophet, a pastor, a priest, the pope, a psychologist, psychiatrist, president, prime minister, and any other word I could think of that begins with P? Or what Paul says, an angel from heaven preaches anything other than what you've heard from the word of God, let them be accursed. Well, the Lord told me. I, okay. There was an interview years ago of the guy, and he said he was on the sofa, and Jesus appeared to him while he was watching Laverne and Shirley. Okay? Laverne and Shirley, right? Because Jesus loves Laverne and Shirley. And he said, Jesus told him this and that and the other thing. Listen to me. I, I want to say what Billy Graham would say to a man like that. The Bible says. Right? The Bible says. And we have lost that. It is not safe to receive anything else other than the Word of God. And when I say not safe, I'm not talking this morning about healthy, wealthy, believe the Bible, and you'll be blessed beyond all measure. We know that's not the case because there are times when we decide to follow this book and we will suffer for it. And it's coming, it's here. But. When I follow the word of God, I'm safe. I'm safe. 
because any loss that I might have will all be made up in eternity. We keep on stepping outside of it. We abandon it. And we suffer for it. Let the world teach us some lessons. The world has nothing to help us. Nothing. Look at their lives. Have what you want. Do what you want. Live like you want. Practice what you want. Right. And your lives are tragic. Simply tragic. And when we step outside the word of God, stuff starts to die. It does. Our peace, our confidence, our joy, our contentment, our rest, don't abandon it. And this man of God had cover. He had safety in the word. And when he abandoned it, he paid for it. And then finally, Jeroboam, quickly, the word was his compassion or mercy, and yet he abhorred it. You say, how in the world could the word be his compassion? I mean, here he was in his church service. He was living in idolatry. Well, the word can be compassion because it came in to stop his perverted worship and to show him truth. I won't read Psalm chapter 25 this morning, Amy, but I will look at uh, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Because the word of God, his correction and truth are certainly compassion and mercy. Here's what he says in Ezekiel. As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die? And the word of God comes and barges right into the middle of not only Jeroboam's idolatry, but our idolatries. I would never worship a bull. I'm not. Yeah, I know. Our idolatry is a little different. Ours are materialism, acceptance, affirmation, stuff, comfort, control, security, rest. And I submit to you this morning, they're as dumb and idle as a bull made of gold. Because they can't hear and they can't help. And God in his mercy and grace shakes our world by giving us the word of God. Mercy makes waves long before judgment ever arrives. And if you're hearing the word of God and it's shaking your world this morning, then thank God for it. It's compassion. It's mercy. It's truth. Do not despise it. We live in a world that tells us we are loving when we ignore When we lie, when we condone, we are not loving. It is never loving to lie to people and not tell them the truth. You know who we love when we do that? We love ourselves. Do you know why? Because I'm more worried about how you feel about me and you liking me and me being your buddy than telling you the truth. For the record, I don't care this morning if you like me or not. I quit looking for friends a long time ago because they're all leaving me. I don't care about them, right? You want to hate me for telling the truth? And get in line. There's a long line. We got jackets for that club. We do. It's a long line. Can I tell you something? You tell the truth. Why? Because the truth is the only thing that will ever set you free. It's the only thing. You can lie, and you can make people feel good. You can make them feel good as they walk into hell, or as they ruin their lives. We must have truth. Be blessed this morning. Understand you're blessed, even if it smarts when the word exposes you.
even if your hand withers, even if the idolatry is interrupted, know that you're blessed that the word of God is being spoken from the word of God by people who care for you. Listen to Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Sometimes it's smart when a friend says, hey, brother, sister, sweetheart, I love you. This ain't going to fly. This is destroying you. I know what you think is going to happen. It's not. It hasn't happened since the beginning of time. It's not going to happen for you. You will not find your fulfillment outside of God's plan. It doesn't exist. It can't because he is the fountain of all goodness and joy. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Paul writes a scathing letter to the church so bad that we don't have it recorded. The letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, the one he's talking about in 2 Corinthians, we don't have it. And I have to wonder because it was really, oh, Paul was upset. And listen to what he says in verse number 9 of chapter 7. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. He says, I'm sorry. I know you felt bad. And I didn't want to make you feel bad, but I'm glad you felt bad. Why? Because it made you repent. It made you turn to truth. It brought life to you. And so this morning, understand, as strange as this story is, The word of God is our career, it's our cover, it's our compassion. We are not to abuse it, abandon it, or abhor it. And understand this morning that God has ultimately wrapped his truth in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. As we know him and love him and surrender to him, that we understand what truth is really all about. We have freedom. We have life. We have joy. The word of the Lord is spoken, and we must submit to it. Turn you, turn you. Why will you die? Why will you let joy and happiness and relationships die in your life? You don't have to. The word of the Lord is spoken, and we love it, and we embrace it, and we worship before him, and we listen and obey, and then we thank him that we've not been judged to the point yet where the word of God is absent. We have it. What will we do with it?